section sixty three of the cambridge modern history volume one the renaissance this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. chapter eighteen catholic europe by the reverend william barry part three all that is left from the immense shipwreck of libraries and literature which happened during the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries bears out this statement it may be convenient to introduce at this point a brief general survey of the first bibles printed whether in latin or the vernacular down to the eve of the reformation as the educated classes read and corresponded on learned topics in the language of rome and monasteries were great consumers of religious works in latin we should expect frequent publication and large editions of the vulgate which had been from before st jerome's day the authorized western version accordingly gutenberg set it up in type as his first production it was finished by fourteen fifty six under the name of the mazarin bible it still survives in several copies the mind's psalter is the first printed volume with a date fourteen fifty seven the first dated bible fourth latin came out at mines from the office of fust and schoffer in fourteen sixty two no book was more frequently republished than the latin vulgate of which ninety eight distinct and full editions appeared prior to fifteen hundred besides twelve others which contained the glossa ordinaria or the postles of lyrinus from fourteen seventy five when the first venetian issue is dated twenty-two complete impressions have been found in the city of st mark alone half a dozen folio editions came forth before a single latin classic had been printed this latin text constantly produced or translated was accessible to all scholars it did not undergo a critical recension but it might be compared with the hebrew psalms printed in fourteen seventy seven the pentateuch printed in fourteen eighty two the prophets in fourteen eighty five the old testament in fourteen eighty eight by abraham ben chaim at soncino in the duchy of milan the hebrew hagiographa had come out at naples in fourteen eighty six the rabbinic bible from the bomberg press at venice was edited in four parts by felix pretensis and dedicated to leo x in fifteen seventeen the firm of aldus in fifteen eighteen published the septuagint erasmus had brought out the greek new testament in fifteen sixteen but it was first printed in fifteen fourteen in the polyglot of cardinal jimenez at alcala complutum which however did not appear until fifteen twenty the earliest bibles printed in any modern language were in german issued by mentelin and egestein of strasburg not later than fourteen sixty six in fourteen seventy one appeared at venice two italian translations the first by malermi a camaldolese monk 
who died as far back as 1421, the second by Nicholas Jensen. Bayet at Lyon is responsible for the first French New Testament in 1477. The Old Testament in Dutch came out at Delft the same year. In 1480, the Low German Bible appeared at Cologne. The entire Bible, done into French paraphrase by Guillaume de Moulin in the 13th century, was committed to type in 1487 and went through 16 editions. The Bohemian version belongs to 1488. The Spanish had been made about 1405 by Boniface, brother of St. Vincent Ferrer. It was printed at Valencia in 1478 and republished in 1515, of course, with the imprimatur of the Inquisition. The standard French version of Jacques Lefebvre, 1512-1523-7, was revised by Louvain theologians and passed through 40 editions down to the year 1700. Fourteen translations of the Vulgate into German and five into Low Dutch are known to have existed before Luther undertook the task. From a collation of these with his Bible, it is evident that the reformer consulted previous recensions and that his work was not entirely original prior to his first complete edition in fifteen thirty four no fewer than thirty catholic impressions of the entire scriptures or portions of them had appeared in the german vernacular eleven full italian editions with permission of the holy office are counted before fifteen sixty seven the polish bible was printed at krakow in fifteen fifty six and many times afterwards with approbation of the reigning popes translations of the psalms and sunday gospels had long been in use from the council of constance or even earlier provincial synods laid the duty on priests of explaining these portions during mass and postels or plenaria which comment upon them in the vernacular meet us everywhere metrical versions such as that of de moulin in france or of merland in the netherlands twelve twenty five to thirteen hundred were well known among all classes but to what an enormous extent the bible was now read the above dates and figures may indicate not to mention the forms in which it was speedily issued pocket or miniature editions for daily use it is not until we come within sight of the lutheran troubles that preachers like geiler of kaisersburg hint their doubts on the expediency of unrestrained bible reading in the vernacular one remarkable fact would seem to tell the other way in this extensive catalogue we have not been able to discover a solitary english bible how did it happen we must ask that before Tyndale's New Testament of 1526, none was printed in our native tongue. A dense darkness hangs over the origin and authorship of the translation ascribed to Wycliffe. It is certain that Archbishop Arundel, at the Council of Oxford in 1408, 
prohibited the making or keeping of unauthorized English versions, and that he condemned, quote, any book, booklet, or tract of this kind made in the time of the said John Wycliffe or since, end quote. It is equally certain that manuscript copies of an English Bible were in possession of such Orthodox Catholics as Thomas of Woodstock, Henry the Sixth, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and the Brigantine nuns of Sion. English Bibles were bequeathed by will and given to churches or religious houses. From all this it has been argued, on the one hand, that authority tolerated the use of a version which was due to Wycliffeite sources, on the other, that a Catholic version must have existed, and that the copies mentioned above contain it. Sir Thomas More, disputing against Tyndale, affirms that no translations executed prior to the Lollards were forbidden. Quote, I myself have seen and can show you, he says in his dialogue, Bibles, fair and old, written in English, which have been known and seen by the bishop of the diocese, and left in the hands of laymen and women whom he knew to be good and Catholic people. End quote. Moore himself was decidedly in favor of vernacular versions, but quote, the New Testament, newly forged by Tyndale, altered and changed in matters of great weight, end quote, he judged worthy of the fire. The extant copies of an earlier Bible, to whomsoever do, exhibit no traces of heretical doctrine. Cranmer and Fox, the martyrologist, both allude to translations of the whole body of scripture, quote, as well before John Wycliffe was born as since, end quote, says the latter. In the destruction of libraries, these have perished and nothing of them is now known. To Latin readers, the Bible would be familiar. Coburger of Nuremberg had set up in London a warehouse for the sale of the Vulgate as early as 1480. To English readers, Caxton offered the Golden Legend in 1483. It contained nearly the whole of the Pentateuch and a large portion of the Gospels. The Liber Festivalis included scripture paraphrases, but it was in Germany that the printer had become the evangelist. No censorship interfered with the ordinary course of instruction and this contemplated the whole duty of a Christian man. It was a comment on holy writ, which all were at liberty to keep in their hands. Fifty-nine editions of The Imitation of Christ were brought out in less than fifty years. Prayer books in heartfelt and instructive speech, The Gate of Heaven, The Path to Paradise, and a hundred more, were sold in all book markets. Numerous as are the specimens that survive, those who have examined them agree that on points afterwards violently disputed, as the doctrine of indulgences and prayers to the saints, they lend no countenance to superstition or excess. Were we to form our view of German religion from these prayers, hymns, and popular manuals, it would be eminently favorable. In language, as in sentiment, they have never been surpassed. The Deutsche Theologie, named and published in part by Luther, 
1516 to 18, is an admirable instance, perfectly orthodox and profoundly spiritual, by an unknown author, perhaps of the 14th century. We must look to other sources of information. Among them, Innocent the Eighth's Bull, Sumus Desiderantes Affectibus, Against Witchcraft, 1484, and the Malleus Maleficarum of Jacob Springer and Heinrich Kramer, Institoris, before 1487, hold a conspicuous place, if we would understand that with much outward ceremony and not a little genuine devotion, the phenomena of diseased fancies, ancient heathenism and growing luxury were mingled in unequal proportions. But there is no reason for alleging that the hierarchy, or the religious orders in general, directly opposed themselves to the progress of learning. They considered that the Christian faith had much to gain, and nothing to lose by the arts, inventions, and discoveries which the new inspiration, called the Renaissance, had carried to so marvellous a height. The enemy was not erudition, but unbelief. It would be as unreasonable to suppose that the rank and file of the monks were classical scholars, as that the personal influence of the prelates was for the most part edifying. But bishops, who lived in open defiance of decency, enacted excellent laws in Synod, and there were few monasteries in which a serious effort to attain learning would be absolutely in vain. The scholastic philosophy was now overladen with futile expositions and had sunk to unprofitable wrangling but erasmus the glory of deventer is a witness beyond exception to the spirit which prevailed among churchmen of high degree from oxford to basel and from cambrai to rome in his colloquies his encomium morier and throughout his correspondence he mocks or argues against many superstitions, irregularities, and fantastic opinions which he had observed in the course of his travels. But nowhere does he hint, under no provocation is he tempted to imagine, that authority frowns upon good letters, while he addresses the Archbishop of Mines and the Pope himself in favor of reform. On these subjects, the evidence of his residence in England is particularly instructive. Erasmus, 1466 to 1536, owed a little to Hegius. He had been remarked by Rudolf Agricola. His patron was the Bishop of Cambrai. After making trial in Paris of the student's joys and sufferings, since he despaired of reaching Italy, he came in 1499 to Oxford and tarried there two or three months. He won the friendship of Collet and Moore. He became acquainted with Grossin and Linacre. These were the lights of English learning, the chief guides in English religion, before the king's great matter brought in a new world. Quote, Collet's erudition, Moore's sweetness, end quote, to which an Erasmian letter alludes, have become proverbial but the movement had not begun with them out of the new impulse during or after the mid-course of the century colleges at oxford had sprung into existence or received a fresh life 
they were rivaling or surpassing the monastic hospitia in the classic revival oxford rather than paris took the lead grossin moore's teacher was not the first englishman who studied greek he received lessons indeed from the exile chalcondylas in fourteen ninety one but twenty-five years earlier two monks of canterbury hadley and selling were students at padua bologna and rome fourteen sixty four to seven according to leland selling attended the lectures of politian at bologna the greek masters appear to have been leonorus and andronicus to canterbury the benedictine monk brought greek manuscripts and converted his monastery into a house of studies from which the knowledge of hellenic literature was carried in more than one direction his most celebrated pupil was linacre sent to oxford about fourteen eighty linacre studied in canterbury college became fellow of all souls and went with selling in fourteen eighty six on an embassy from henry the seventh to pope innocent at florence he shared in the lessons given by politian to the children of lorenzo de medici from chalcondylas he learned more greek than selling had taught him it was when linacre had passed a year in italy that he persuaded william grossin whom he had known in oxford to come out and share his studies such was the origin of those famous lectures attended by sir thomas more of the names we have mentioned two therefore represent the benedictine cloister at canterbury grossin was a doctor in theology almost superstitiously observant says erasmus of ecclesiastical custom linacre after graduating in the medical schools at padua became physician to henry the eighth and in the decline of life took priests orders selling translated a sermon of chrysostom's from greek into latin as early as fourteen eighty eight and the complete homer as well as the plays of euripides once associated with the memory of archbishop theodore which are still preserved in the library of corpus christi cambridge may have been among the manuscripts which selling brought from italy in like manner the livy the greek psalter of the fifteenth century and the hebrew and latin psalms in trinity college library were benedictine treasures with this learned prior we may reckon his friend langton in fourteen eighty three bishop of winchester from whose domestic school came the still more learned robert pace well known as a diplomatist and man of letters langton sent pace to study at padua and rome he was assisted by cuthbert tunstall and william latimer and was taught by leonicus few among englishmen except the clergy were as a venetian traveller observed in fifteen hundred at this time addicted to literature in religious houses as at reading ramsey and glastonbury distinct evidence is forthcoming of zeal in scholarship to these examples may be added richard charnock prior of st mary's oxford with whom erasmus stayed 
the registers of the university from 1506 to 1535, the era of dissolution, prove that the Benedictines kept up a high average of graduates. To the same effect are details gleaned elsewhere, as at Gonville Hall, Cambridge, between 1500 and 1523. Help was constantly given to poor students by monastic houses. Hence, when these were swept away, not only did the secular clergy lack recruits, but the universities showed a falling off in their scholars. It is remarked that in 1547 and 1550 not a single degree was taken at Oxford. In 1545, Cambridge petitioned to the crown for fresh privileges in apprehension of the total decay of learning. Latimer, in Edward VI's time, and Edgeworth under Mary, contrast this lamentable change with former flourishing years. Under Henry VIII, the numbers fell off. The spirit of independence was broken. The universities lay at the king's mercy. True, the Reformation had allied itself with humanism, but these two great movements were not destined to follow the same path. Erasmus had complained of the harm which Luther was inflicting on letters. Bembo was all astonishment at the piety of Melanchthon. Neither the literary nor the scientific spirit was, in its essence, Protestant. Collet, 1466-1519, who strikes us as entirely English, downright, straightforward, and impatient of scholastic subtleties and pagan license, had come home from Italy in 1498 with a contempt for its ungodly refinements. He lectured without stipend in Oxford on the epistles of St. Paul, after a new method which attracted many, but was a stone of offence to some of the elders. Collet preached a return to primitive discipline. He preferred the fathers before their commentators, and he despised much of the current usage as tending to overlay the gospel with human inventions. In 1504, Henry VII named him Dean of St. Paul's. Here he endowed the public school of which he made William Lilly headmaster. Its governors were to be married citizens, not monks or clerics. It furnished a pattern to other foundations, including the grammar schools of Edward VI and Elizabeth, but was much decried by teachers of the ancient stamp. In Archbishop Warham, Collet, as afterwards Erasmus, found an unfailing friend and benefactor. By him, the dean was enabled to address the convocation of Canterbury in 1512. Collet inveighed against the worldliness of bishops, the accumulation of benefices, the evils of non-residents. He attacked no dogma, but he was at once accused before the primate as disparaging celibacy and as being himself a heretic. Warham dismissed the charges. If we consider who Collet's friends were, the accusations against him seem scarcely probable. He had been, for a number of years, Moore's spiritual director. He strongly approved of Erasmus when he brought out his Greek New Testament, but he praised quite as strongly 
Melton's Exhortation to Young Men Entering on Orders, printed by Winkin de Word, in which it is laid down that a priest should say his hours and his mass every day, as well as meditate on the writings of the fathers and read the scriptures. It was not dogma, but the superfluous contendings of neoteric divines, which provoked the indignation of those moderate reformers with whom Collet thought and acted. As a patristic student, he is termed by Erasmus, quote, the assertor and champion of the old theology, end quote, a phrase which defines his position, but which does not exhibit him as favoring the Reformation. Fox, Bishop of Winchester, founded Corpus Christi, Oxford, in 1516, with special reference to the study of Greek. Three years later, sermons and speeches were made against this innovation, but Moore and Pace engaged the king easily on their own side, and the Trojans were laughed out of court. At Cambridge, Fisher, the Chancellor, recalled his protégé, Richard Croke, from Leipzig in 1519, to carry on the work of Erasmus, who had taught Greek in the university between 1511 and 1513. In the great humanist's flattering judgment, Cambridge had become equal to the best academy abroad, since it had discarded the old exercises in Aristotle and put away Scotus. On the appearance of his New Testament, Warham assured Erasmus in an all but official letter that it had been gladly received by all the bishops to whom he had shown it. Fisher and Moore, in 1519, helped in the correction of the second edition. Leo X accepted its dedication. The alarm which was raised in some parts, as if Greek studies were a prelude to Lutheranism, found no echo in England. Few signs of an approaching catastrophe in church and state can be noted until the fall of Wolsey. The Lollards were extinct. Benevolence still continued to flow in ecclesiastical channels. As in Germany, schools, colleges, and guilds were multiplied. The people, who had, during the last fifty or sixty years, rebuilt so many parish churches, now adorned, endowed, and managed them. Printing presses were set up under clerical patronage. Religious literature was in constant demand. Missals, manuals, breviaries for the use of the clergy, special treatises like par oculi, dealing with their duties, and primers, prayer books, divis et pauper for the laity, were printed in great abundance. Sermons were much in request. Paul's cross attracted famous preachers and vast audiences. But there was another side to the picture. That religious men in England had somewhat degenerated from their ancient strictness and fervor of spirit is one reason alleged by Cressacre Moore why Sir Thomas did not join the Carthusians or Franciscans. Unlike Erasmus, who suffered from the intemperate zeal which thrust vows upon him in his youth, Moore was a devoted adherent of monasticism. His biographer's judgment, however, is far too mild. On the other hand, the sweeping inferences which have been drawn from the indictment 
laid before Cardinal Morton in 1489 against the abbot of St. Albans cannot be accepted without proof. Disorder and dilapidation enough were shown to justify Wolsey in taking out the legatine commission in 1518, which later on was turned against the clergy, whom it did not amend, as bringing them into a premonier. Wolsey could have reformed others, himself not at all, or not until his dignities were stripped off and death stared him in the face. A magnificent pluralist, ill-famed for his unclerical living, and a cardinal who did not shrink from proposing to buy the papal tiara, he had always been the friend of learning since he completed Magdalen Tower at Oxford in his bursar's days. With a revival of monastic discipline, he intended to combine large schemes of study founded on the classics. Bishops as severe as Fox of Winchester welcomed his clerical reform, which could not imply designs on the Catholic faith the nation did not repulse an english legate various benedictine houses put into wolsey's hands the election of their superiors the dominicans would not resist but with the observantines there was great difficulty for his own province of york wolsey drew up a constitution fifteen fifteen or fifteen eighteen which has been termed a model of ecclesiastical government how far it was carried out we have scanty means of determining his measures with regard to education are better known in fifteen fifteen the university of oxford surrendered to him all its powers he proceeded to found seven lectureships one of which was held by ludovico vives he planned the college of secular priests for five hundred students which was then styled cardinal college and is now christ church it was to be fed from a richly endowed school at ipswich where only a gateway remains to tell of that splendid undertaking twenty-two small convents with less than six inmates apiece were suppressed and their revenues applied to defray these enterprises it was remarked afterwards that wolsey's legatine autocracy had paved the way for Henry's assumption of the supreme headship, and that a precedent had been given in dissolving the small monasteries for the pillage and spoliation that speedily followed by act of Parliament. On the other side, if reformation was necessary, Wolsey's dealing can scarcely be judged inhumane. His hand would have been lighter than Thomas Cromwell's, and while he protected the ancient creed, he was lenient with such dissenters as fell under his jurisdiction. In truth, it was not the revival of learning that shook Europe to its base, but the assault on a complicated and decaying system in which politics, finance, and privileges were blended with religion. Of the twelve popes who sat in St. Peter's chair between 1420 and 1520, not one was a man of transcendent faculty or deep insight. Martin V broke his solemn engagement to reform the Curia. Eugenius IV trifled with the Council of Basel and squandered a great opportunity. Cesarini warned him in vain 
that the German clergy were dissolute, the lay people scandalized, that the Holy See had fallen from its high estate. He pleaded for a serious amendment if, quote, the entire shame were not to be cast on the Roman curia as the cause and author of all these evils, end quote. When the anarchy of Basel drove him from it, he did what in him lay at Florence, 1439, to promote the short-lived union with the Greeks. And he perished in Hungary at the Battle of Varna, still fighting on behalf of a united and reformed Christendom. Nicholas V, though intent chiefly on restoring literature, sent Cusanus with ample powers, as we have seen, into the north. But his own desire was that Rome should be a missionary of culture, when what the world needed was an economic and moral restoration. Pius II, whose character stands forth so individually in the long succession, had been a dissolute young man, but as a pontiff he was grave and enthusiastic. His zeal for the crusade denoted some far-off touch of greatness. He, too, spoke of reform. The learned Venetian, Domenici, drew up a project which was to cure the ills of simony, to correct the vices of churchmen, and, quote, other uncleanness and indecency, end quote. Cusanus, on being consulted, took a wider range in his fourteen articles. Primitive discipline should be restored, and three visitors, clothed in dictatorial power, were to deal with the whole church, beginning from the Pope and Curia. At least, he observed significantly, their state need not be worse than in the time of Martin V. Of all this, nothing whatever came. Pius II began once more the bad old custom of nepotism. He advanced his kinsfolk to high positions in the church, regardless of their age or attainments. But he distinguished some good men, as Calandrini, the grand penitentiary, the two Capranicas, Oliva, general of the Augustinians, known as the Angel of Peace, and the stern Carvajal, who survived as an example of austere virtue into the shameful years which tolerated cardinals like Borgia and della Rovere. Judged by ethical standards, Italy exhibited during the whole of the fifteenth century a deeper decline than any other country in Europe. Private depravity and political debasement followed the most brilliant culture like a shadow. Violence, craft, cruelty were mingled with the administration of holy things. Yet the descent was broken, though not arrested, by religious revivals, especially in the north and center, of which the credit is due to the Observantine friars, the Austin hermits, and the Benedictines. A catalogue of eighty saints, men and women, chiefly in these communities, has been made out. It covers the period from 1400 to 1520. None are of the first rank, but Bernardino of Siena, 1444, and Giovanni Capistrano, 1456, observantines, preached repentance with great, if not lasting, effect to multitudes. Antoninus, Archbishop of Florence, 1459,
taught Christian doctrine successfully, denounced usury, and was a welcome peacemaker. Lorenzo Giustiniani, Patriarch of Venice, 1456, abounded in good works. Fra Angelico da Fiesoli, the Dominican, 1455, perhaps the most purely religious painter that ever lived, was himself a vision of innocence and joy. Bernardino da Feltre, 1494, by way of rescuing the poor from usurers, against whom he waged an incessant warfare, established in Rome the first Monte di Pietà, with the concurrence of Innocent VIII. The whole story of his benevolent campaigns is replete with interest. A series of preachers, the most famous were Franciscans, from Roberto da Lecce to Gabriele da Barletta, thundered against the vices of the age and its growing paganism. The Third Order of St. Francis counted thousands of members, especially in the middle class, not so tainted as nobles or clergy. For whatever may be said in defense of the priesthood elsewhere, in the Italian peninsula it had lost its savor. Documentary evidence from almost every district and city leaves no doubt on this melancholy subject. The clergy were despised. So patent was their misconduct that proposals to abrogate the law of celibacy began to be put forward. Pius II may have entertained such a thought, but he contented himself with an endeavor to correct the religious orders. The observantines, who were strict, deserved and obtained his favor, but continual strife for precedence, which meant disciples and influence, raged between these and the conventuals, nor could any pope reconcile them. Santa Justina, the Benedictine house at Padua, 1412, became an Italian Bursfeld. Its reform was accepted in Verona, Pavia, Milan. Pius II brought under it many monasteries which required better discipline. He deposed Auribelle, the unworthy general of the Dominicans. He took severe measures with the convents of Vallombrosa, the Humiliati in Venice, the Carmelites in Brescia, the religious in Siena and Florence. Other popes, Paul II, Sixtus IV, even Alexander VI, did in like manner. Such efforts had been stimulated by earnest and cultivated men, of whom the most capable were Traversari, general of the Camaldulese, 1386-1439, Baptista Mantuanus, 1448-1516, and Egidius of Viterbo, Augustinian and Cardinal, whose decrees in the Synod of Santa Sabina afforded a scheme of reformation to the Fifth Lateran. The correspondence of Alessandra degli Strozzi, 1406-71, the biographies of Bisticci, the notebooks of Rucellai, Landucci's diary, Domenici's work on the government of the household, reveal a sincere spirit of piety in many families and correct the hard impression we should otherwise receive, especially of life at Florence under the Medici. Vittorino da Feltre's school at Mantua is estimated in another chapter.
with him as a christian teacher may be named agostini datti of siena fourteen seventy nine and maffeo vigeo the latter of whom wrote six books on education and was a friend of pius the second devout cultivated and practical st antoninus published a manual of confession which is but a specimen of a very large class and which instructs all professions from magistrates to weavers and day laborers in their several duties guilds and brotherhoods were a feature of the time their objects were mainly secular but religious and charitable foundations were almost invariably associated with them strict rules enjoining daily prayer the use of the sacraments the observance of sundays and holidays are incorporated in their statutes care of the poor and sick members was obligatory every guild had its physician pensions were often provided for widows and children and dowries for maidens the wealthier brotherhoods built each their scuola and embellished or erected churches in italy even more than among germans church building was a passion and an art lending itself sometimes to strange ends witness the isotta chapel at rimini but serving religion on a grand scale according as it was then interpreted plague and sickness called forth many confraternities such as the great misericordia dating from twelve forty four revived at florence in fourteen seventy five san rocco at venice fourteen fifteen the good men of st martin fourteen forty one due to archbishop antoninus and the sodality of the dolorosa yet existing in rome fourteen forty eight torquemada in fourteen sixty established in the minerva dowries for girls the annunciata florence towards fifteen hundred had seventy-three municipal associations and at rome there were many more dedicated to religious observances but likewise to charity such was the brotherhood in the ripetta established in fourteen ninety nine by alexander the sixth which had its own hospital and took charge of sailors again trade guilds of every description flourished native and even foreign and these were accustomed to act the miracle plays called devozioni which had sprung up in umbria the great hospitals of which there were thirty-five in florence alone are the special honor of the fifteenth century in rome the popes martin eugenius and sixtus the latter of whom rebuilt santo spirito showed them constant favor most of the old foundations were kept up many new ones added over the whole of italy in the period between fourteen hundred and fifteen twenty four fresh hospitals almshouses orphanages schools and other institutions of a charitable nature have been reckoned up to the number of three hundred and twenty four but this calculation does not exhaust the list from these things it is clear that savonarola fourteen fifty two to ninety eight as happens to great men did no more than sum up in his preaching a world of ideas and aspirations with which his audience the early contemporaries of michelangelo 
were already familiar. Converted to the Order of St. Dominic by a sermon which he heard from the lips of an Austin hermit at Faenza, 1474, filled with a lofty Platonism learned from Aquinas, sickened by the public depravity, and prescient as his poem De Ruina Mundi shows of coming disasters, he nourished himself on the Bible and the Apocalypse, fasted, prayed, wept, and became a visionary. At Florence, to which he was transferred in 1484, he saw the brethren of San Marco losing themselves in the pedantries of the old school and the upper classes of society in the frivolities of the new. His rudeness of speech and violence of gesture told against him in the pulpit at first. He was always sighing for, quote, that peace which reigned in the church when she was poor, end quote. Then at San Gemignano there came to the friar his large prophetic vision, quote, the church will be scourged and renewed, and that in our day, end quote. He made no allowance for perspective. He came back, took Florence by storm, and ruled it like a king. His mind grew to be a place of dreams. This was not astonishing in the countrymen of Dante and Buonarroti. Italians saw their religion painted and sculptured. For them it lay outside books and filled their eyes. But Florence was, before all things, a city of political scheming. The papacy aimed at temporal dominion. It was capable, so Machiavelli judged, of becoming the first power in the land. The pulpit was at once platform and newspaper. Spiritual censures were employed as weapons of war. Sixtus IV laid an interdict on Florence for the conspiracy of the Pazzi, with which his remembrance is indelibly bound up. How should a prophet not be a politician? Savonarola could not see his way to an answer in the negative. He foretold the coming of the French under Charles VIII. He did his utmost to keep Florence in a line of policy which Alexander VI rejected with disdain, although he accepted it two years after Savonarola's death. In this confusion of ideas and interests, the preacher of righteousness fell under excommunication. He was tortured, degraded, hanged, and burnt by a coup d'etat. Savonarola had invoked a general council to depose Alexander VI. He fell back upon Pierre d'Ailly and the decrees of Constance. For his prophesyings, he never claimed infallible authority. His moral teaching was taken from Aquinas. In expounding the scriptures, he followed the allegorical method. On points of dogma, he was at one with his Dominican masters. Like the brethren of Deventer, he was friendly to learning, art, and science. Among his disciples were Pico della Mirandola, Fra Bartolomeo, Michelangelo. It would not be impossible to demonstrate that the sublime and simple grandeur with which the mightiest of Florentines has painted his prophets and sibyls on the vault of the Sistine Chapel is in perfect accord 
with the melancholy and majesty of Savonarola's teaching. Nor in the burning of the vanities are we to imagine a spirit resembling that of John Knox. It was an arte de fe of vicious or unseemly objects, not a judgment on Christian art. Fra Girolamo was, in a word, the last of the great medieval friars. But the restoration which he longed for began in Spain. Flushed with her victory over Jews and Muslims, baptized a nation by her unity in the faith, exalted in a moment to the foremost place among European powers, Spain was destined to rule and sometimes to tyrannize over Catholicism. The telling names here are Ferdinand and Isabel, Jimenez and Loyola. Feudal rights went down before the monarchy in Castile. The estates of Aragon were no match for Ferdinand. The great military knighthoods were absorbed by the sovereign. From Barcelona, the Inquisition was carried to Seville and Toledo. By papal bull, yet in despite of papal protests, it became the supreme court before which nobles and prelates lost countenance. Spiritual, orthodox, independent, politic, and cruel, it played with lives and properties, but created one Spain as it upheld one church. Thus, it exercised an authority from which there was no escape. Even Sixtus the Fourth lodged his appellate jurisdiction in the hands of the Archbishop of Seville, 1488. No church could be more arrogantly national than the Spanish, fenced round as it was with exemptions, royal, episcopal, monastic. But none was more Catholic. It bred neither heresy nor schism. The reform which it needed came by the hands of a saintly queen, and of her ascetic director, Cisneros, or Jiménez, 1436-1517. Other names deserve honorable mention. Cardinal Mendoza, primate of Spain, had lived up to his high duties. Corillo, his predecessor at the Synod of Aranda in 1473, had laid down 29 chapters of Reformation. Talavera, who held the sea of Granada, would have converted the Moors by kindness and put into their hands a vernacular Bible, for which he fell under grave suspicion and was censured by Jiménez. Yet this ascetic Franciscan, who had been a secular priest, was himself a lover of learning, not cruel by temperament, though severe with the ungodly as in his own person. He lived like a hermit on the throne of Toledo, which he had accepted only out of obedience to the Pope. In 1494, with the aid of Isabel, against Alexander VI's terrified protestations, he corrected the Observantines with such rigor that thousands fled to Morocco sooner than obey. Of Arabic manuscripts deemed anti-Christian, he made a famous holocaust. He risked his life at Granada in 1499, offered the Moors baptism or death, and brought over many thousands. His services to sacred and secular erudition were perpetrated in the restored University of Alcala and the Polyglot Bible, first of its kind, 
since Oregon's Hexapla. Like Wolsey, the Spanish cardinal obtained unlimited legatine faculties. He would hear of no exemptions, and, being primate, grand inquisitor, and chief of the government, he became irresistible. In two synods, of Alcala in 1497 and Talavera in 1498, he published his regulations. Spain had been suffering from ruffianly nobles, undisciplined monks, immoral and insolent clerics. Bishops attempted to withstand queen and cardinal. They were compelled to give way. The result may be briefly stated. The worst abuses were purged out of the Iberian church, and while other European clergy were accused of gross licentiousness, the Spanish priests became, for the most part, virtuous and devout. As early as 1493, the Benedictine Abbey of Montserrat accepted under compulsion the stricter rule of Valladolid. Its new abbot, Garcia Cisneros, nephew of the cardinal, composed a book of spiritual exercises, from which Ignatius of Loyola may have borrowed the title for his very different and much more scientific treatise when he retired to this convent and was guided by the Benedictine Chanon. As is well known, he received his celebrated wound in fighting the French, who were then at war with the Pope at the siege of Pampeluna in 1512. The pseudo-council of Pisa was shortly to be answered by the Fifth of Lateran. In 1511, king and bishops at Burgos uttered a series of demands which came to this that reformation must begin at rome the reign of simony and dispensations no longer make void the law of god that learning must be encouraged councils held at fixed times residents enforced pluralities abolished an unsigned spanish memorial of the same date is bolder still it paints in darkest hues the evils tolerated by successive pontiffs. It proposes sweeping measures, which were at last carried into execution by the Council of Trent, aided by the course of events. For the fifth of Lateran came to naught. Though admonished by Cajetan and Egidius of Viterbo, dissolute prelates could not reform disorderly monks. Leo X cared only to rid himself of the pragmatic sanction. Popes, cardinals, curia went forward headlong to the double catastrophe of the Diet of Worms and the Sack of Rome. That which revolutionaries aimed at, John of Goch, John Rucherath of Oberwessel, Gansforth of Groningen, and finally Luther, was the pulling down of the sacerdotal sacramental system, hence the abolition of the mass and the hierarchy that which catholic reformers spent their lives in attempting was to make the practice of clergy and faithful harmonize with the ideals inherited from their past shrines festivals pilgrimages devotions brotherhoods new religious orders like the minims of st francis of paula and the third orders of regulars had no other design except to carry on a tradition which came down from St. Benedict, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, 
the fathers of the desert, the ancient churches. Justification by faith alone, the unprofitableness of Christian works and virtues, the right of free inquiry, with no appeal to a supreme visible tribunal, were all ideas unknown to the Catholic populations, abhorrent and anarchic in their eyes. From the general view which has been taken, we may conclude that no demand for revolution in dogma was advanced save by individuals, that the daily offices and parochial ministrations were fulfilled with increasing attention, that abuses, though rife, were not endured without protest, that the source of mischief was especially in the Roman court, which encouraged learning but made no strenuous effort to restore discipline, that the true occasions, whether of rebellion or reform, were not the discoveries and inventions of a progressive age, but deep-seated moral evils, and above all, the avarice and ambition of worldly-minded prelates thrust upon the seas of Christendom against the express injunctions of canon law, that the Bible was open, antiquity coming to be understood, an immense provision of charity laid up for the sick, the indigent, the industrial classes, for education and old age, that decrees of many synods in every country of the West pointed out the prevailing diseases and their various remedies, and that if in course of time the Council of Trent yielded the essence and the sum of all these efforts, it is entitled to the glory of the Catholic Reformation. End of section 63. Recording by Linda Johnson.